You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. Thank you so much. It is such an honor for me to be here. I would love to give you all a very formal introduction, but that would not be fun. So I decided instead that I would um, tell you all a few things that you may not know about my mentor, Dad. The first thing that you all might know from watching him in uh, on doing his commentary on air is that this is the only person on the planet who you might have to at least pull an online thesaurus to know the last sentence that he completed in conversation with you. The other thing that I would say is in addition to dropping bars in a sermon, he also does it in his books, in online commentary, in text messages, and everywhere else. And I would argue, even though he's written about Jay-Z, maybe able to get down with Jay-Z in a little freestyle battle. I would put money on that. Now, after the Nate Robinson fight the other day, I don't know if anybody wants to bet on amateurs, but Doc is not an amateur. Um, I would also tell you all that he is the author of more than 20 books. And in addition to being um, an author, uh, a best-selling author at that, he is Shaping Young Minds, now at Vanderbilt University. And I want you all to understand this title. He is the Centennial Chair and University Distinguished Professor of African-American and Diaspora Studies in the College of Arts and Science and University Distinguished Professor of Ethics and Society in the Divinity School. And he, of course, uh, will begin that in January. So in addition to that mouthful, um, we know that every single day, Doc is shaping young minds and old, and he has not forsaken us in this book. Long time coming, reckoning with race in America. And so I can't wait to dive into this with you tonight. Doc, thank you so much for asking me to do this. Thank you so much. I am so honored that this brilliant, uh, extraordinarily intelligent and soulful woman who I who I love and who is my daughter and my mentee, an exquisite example of what our people hope for when they fought so hard to open doors of opportunity so that our brilliant children could walk through them. And as one of the most famous, one of the most gifted, and one of the most seriously committed young people that we have in this nation, I'm just honored to be in her presence, honored to have any small thing to do with her, and I'm honored she's here with us here tonight. Doc, thank you so much. I want to um, just jump right into what you see when you open this great book. Um, it's very clear that you were so intentional and it's so creative in writing letters to those who have um, who are slain, some of them in the recent past and some of them a little further back. For example, Elijah McClain, who, of course, many of us learned about over this summer, um, Emmett Till, Eric Garner, Brianna Taylor, Hydea Pendleton, Sandra Bland and Reverend Clementa Pinkney. And I want to start with why you decided um, to pin letters to them. And if you can talk about the significance of the substance of the letters in the five chapters, the prologue and the epilogue, what 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 drove you to write these letters to these particular um, victims in our community? Yes, ma'am. Well, you know, I wanted to write to them and not simply about them. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to further objectify them. It's already strange 
that we only know their names after they're dead, right? So that they come to life for us essentially uh, by means of their deaths and the publication of their deaths and the publicity surrounding their deaths. And so I wanted to speak to them, our recently arrived ancestors, each of them, uh, with the exception of Emmett Till. And so I wanted that epistolary form, that letter form, uh, so that I could pour out of my heart, so I could speak from my emotion. Being a light-skinned Black man born the day before Drake, you know that both of us have that sensitivity. And I mean that seriously, right? When I look at Drake's music, when I listen to Drake's music, as a Black man of a particular orientation and understanding in the world being perceived in a certain way, I understand that, right? That's why I was a fan of his from the very beginning. I want to expose some of our fights and our disagreements about Drake here on uh, Public. There are some. <laughs> you know I was losing all those arguments. She was clowning me on the text, y'all. But anyway, so, <laughs> but I've been consistent in supporting that, brother. But being... Uh, that kind of emotional person who also understands you got to discipline those emotions and direct them in a, a more uplifting fashion. I wanted to use my brain, my mind, but my soul to identify with them, to talk to them, to commune with them. And I can say this to you because you're a deeply and profoundly spiritual woman. Um, I wanted to commune with those ancestors. I wanted to hear from them. And by talking to them, uh, to hear back from them in my spirit, in my soul, the affirmation that I would receive, the writing would go a certain way, feeling that, no, I don't want to say that, I want to say this, without making it hokey pokey and spiritualist, uh, needless to say that by speaking to them, I wanted to purchase, to gain purchase on their own spirits, the communication that they could have with me, not speaking to the dead in a seance, but talking to them because they gave the ultimate sacrifice of their lives, often without intending to do so, um, making them martyrs in our tradition. I start with um, Elijah McClain because he wasn't as well known as the others. Mm -hmm. But when you, when you read that story, you can't help but, but know that this is so tragic, that a 23-year-old young Black man uh, one of his co-workers said he walked like he had a gold orb around him. And, you know, he may have been on the spectrum. He obviously was a beautiful, sensitive young man. He played the violin to pigeons and birds. Uh, he wouldn't hurt a fly. You know, Albert Schweitzer's notion of reverence for life. He's like Albert Schweitzer as a young black kid. And right outside of Denver in Aurora, here he is walking home from a convenience store. And... um which always seems to be a horror for us, right? These convenience stores and how, I mean, my Lord, it's like, it's like a scene from Get Out or something. So he's walking home. Somebody calls the police because this is before COVID. He has a ski mask on because he easily gets cold due to his anemia. So he's walking along, whistling, having fun. And then the police pull up on him and it gets violent, unnecessarily so. He says, please respect my space that I am speaking. I love that, that formulation. I'm speaking recognition. I'm speaking space. In the beginning was the word. I'm creating an environment for you to understand. So he talked about that. They treated him like an animal. Uh, they they chokeholded him, choke him twice, chokeheld him twice. He, he passed out two times. Then they came with the ketamine and put some drugs in him 
one week later, he was dead. And it was horrible. So that letter is to Elijah McClain. The next letter is to Emmett Till. Y'all know he's the 14-year-old boy. Doc, real quick, I, I want to I stop you um, about um, Elijah McClain because, you know, I want to be honest with you. When I opened the book and I started with that letter, the very thing that you reference in the book is what I experienced. I was like, I can't handle the heaviness of this again. We're still in the middle of COVID. We're still disproportionately dying at the hands of COVID. We're still wrestling with people about whether or not defund the police is too strong when we're just trying to say, we're trying to shock your conscience to stay alive. I have to read this story again, I know. And I literally had to wrestle with myself to because I'm like, I don't want to relive it again. And to your point, like there's this tenderness about him that everybody talks about that you get from what he decides to say back to the officers. It's not a fight. It's a plea the entire time. Unlike some folks, right, where there may be a wrestling and they surrender. He was in surrender at the beginning of the interaction. Yes. And um, that 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 trauma that you talk about in the book where. You're like watching the videos, you know, seeing the hashtags. Like, how many times do we have to relive this black trauma? So I'm like, well, Doc, why are you taking us through this? But what what I feel like, you, you know, you were trying to do in the spirit of really everything that you write is, I'm gonna give you this harsh truth, but I'm also gonna end with hope, and we will get there. But I really want to know, um, you know, how how this type of work you writing it, how this type of work, us reading it, gets us to healing. Right. That's a great point. I'm glad you raised that. I think part of it, and I don't want to ascribe it simply to this because it's far more complicated, but part of it is generational too, right? I came up in a time when we didn't have a filter, when we didn't have the legitimate self-care that the younger generation has taught us, right? I mean, a lot of old people, we clown the young people, oh man, self-care, Martin Luther King Jr. ain't no self-care when he's trying to get a speech and out of the road. Dad Gummit, he should have. Dad Gummit, if somebody had, 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 had applied that to him, when they opened his chest at his uh, autopsy and discovered that this, 60, this 39-year-old man had the heart of a 60-some-year-old man, because of the stress, because of the heartbreak, because of the enormous death threats. So there should have been some self-care, right? And the forms of self-care that were adopted were probably self-destructive. So the, the point is, though, that I often hear in my class, uh, one of my TAs, they're younger, uh, Dr. Dyson, do you think we should have a warning? And it's so strange to me because... I don't want to be cavalier and dismissive. I want to say, I want to take this into account. So if this is hard for you, if this is harsh for you, but these people had no choice. And what I want to say in this book is that the reason I have to present it as clearly and as articulately and as poignantly and as powerfully as I can, they didn't have the leisure or the comfort or the choice not to experience this. And if they could die for this, I feel the least we can do. I'm not saying in a sadistic way to keep reliving it, re-traumatizing ourselves, but I think to confront it and to feel what they felt, 
You know, I'm I'm a Christian minister. We every 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 Sunday morning, he died. <laughs> yes, he did. Every Sunday morning, they're talking about. Now, once that you can say, is this sadistic Christianity? Maybe. But he died until the blood poured down. So they want you to understand what it is that the sacrifice was for you to live a free life. And in one sense, since I'm calling them martyrs, I want you to understand what their Golgotha was. I want you to understand what that execution was. I want you to understand what this cross that they bore was. And I I can't at this point, partly generationally, I have to say, I want to ask young people, indulge me, hear me, bear with me, because we have to hear this. And white brothers and sisters find it hard. They found it hard on tears we cannot stop. They'll probably find some of this hard. I got to say, I love you. I appreciate you. But you got to hear this, because if we don't hear this, maybe, maybe, let me put it this way. Maybe if we hear it for real this time, we won't see it repeated again. I would rather live again with the trauma of their deaths so that it would discourage anything else like this from happening. And because we refuse to do it, we um, we make ourselves immune to it. We end up repeating it time and time again. And except we say, I don't want to see it. I have the luxury of not seeing it. I have the luxury of not watching it again. And I understand that. I just don't think we should have that luxury in the face of people who gave up their lives for us. I get that, Doc. I do. Um, and, and you were about to reference this Emmett Till chapter in the Emmett Till chapter, you do a masterful job of connecting what Emmett Till experienced, um, as a result of what appeared to be him whistling at a white woman, um, and, uh, what happened with Christian Cooper, um, in Central Park. And I believe you write this letter to him to one, to demonstrate that we've come kind of far But throughout the book, we're clear that we haven't come far enough because you say here in too many instances, it takes an act of divine intervention to keep black men from being the targets of revenge for allegedly harming beloved white women. The very thing that Amy Cooper, who now um, is lovingly referred to as a Karen, was doing. Um, You talk about this adding texture to our racial reckoning. What does texture to our racial reckoning look like in the face of an Amy Cooper versus a black man sharing her last name, Christian Cooper, in a letter written to Emmett Till? No, that's uh, so beautifully done. I got to take you on the road with me so you can help me explain this book to everybody. I just want to point out that you said this last time we did a book talk and I've not gone on the road. Even though we are on the road, Doc, technically. this We were technically on the road, but I mean, you know. We might have to do a father-daughter book, too. I'm ready. All right. (laughs) So here's the thing. Um, To talk about textures, right, I want people to feel it, right? I'm not a painter, except I try to do so with words. So I want you to feel the grainy existential mystery, the anxiety, the, the fact that the tables got turned. You know, both last name Cooper, uh, and and she he got the table. She turned the tables on her because white Karens are used to being the ones who deputize themselves and direct. Hey, leash that dog up. He had the temerity to ask her to leash her dog up. He flipped the table. Like, how dare you, black man? Right, ask me to do this. And 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 I want to say to the Amy Coopers of the world, imagine. The, the resentment you felt. Imagine what we deal with every day. Y'all, y'all tripping about the dog 
people be telling us everything. White folk, I don't know in your experience, but in my experience, they feel that they can tell us anything at any time. I have been up in the mountains of Arizona trying to seek spiritual relief from the ennui and the horror of everyday life. And white folk have interfered in that. Sitting, I remember uh, Marcy and I were sitting on a darn bus one time and the 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 person said uh who was driving the bus could you put your stuff up on you know uh, on the floor because if you got it in the seat next to you somebody won't be able to sit down so i was about to do it and the white woman said you heard what he said move your your thing i was like ma'am i said i'm you know god bless you i know you don't mean any harm but but I don't need you to tell me. I'm clearly going to obey what the what the bus driver said. Well, you should have done it already and blah, blah, blah. And then we got into a thing and I said, Jesus Christ. I said, let me tell you something. You have no idea who I am. I said, that's part of your arrogance. I said, and your white privilege to not even understand who I am. And this was the time, I'm not gonna lie to you. And I did say this and I might be ashamed of it, but I'm gonna be honest about it. This was the time when the DC sniper was out. And I said to her, you don't even know who I am. I said, I could be the D.C. sniper sitting up in here waiting for you to get off of this darn bus. Now, that wasn't right. And I admitted and I confessed oh my sin. Oh, my God. I confessed my sin. And her husband, I said, let me tell you something. I said, your husband is sitting next to you right now begging you to shut up because he knows you are a minute away from me rhetorically tearing yourself up. And so I said, what I recommend you do is be quiet because you have no idea who you're fooling with and you won't battle me. And I said, and if you do, you're going to get hurt. And I said, this is what black people mean when we say we're trying to escape racism and white folk keep dragging us back in. I, I literally said that to her on the bus. I believe so, you said every bit of that. I just oh, don't I, believe I, you I, said yourself. I think you probably said your. But I'm not going to say it because we're at the Commonwealth. You ain't never lied because you know those purple passages do dot my language. So <laughs> the thing is, is that he flipped the script. He turned the tables. And yes, in one sense, Emmett Till, 14 years old, dying because a white woman named Carolyn Bryant, who admitted at, what, 83 years old a few years ago, I was lying. I wouldn't even say, I wouldn't even, I, I, I just made that up. So now your makeup is what gets us tore up and then hung up, lynched up, and then killed. And yeah. so I did want to link uh, Emmett Till to Amy Cooper and to Christian Cooper. Um, and I also wanted to link him to um, Ahmaud Arbery as he was being hunted down like an animal. And yes, it is so true. The textures, you know, I, I asked people in the book, imagine how Ahmaud Arbery felt as he's running, chest heaving, uh, out of it. And, and you think four minutes ain't long. Imagine running at the top of your speed uh, be because a truck is following you uh, in front of you and a car is behind you and they are hunting you and you know the likelihood is they're going to kill you. I mean the terror. This is what I mean by we can't we can't exempt ourselves from at least being there with them metaphorically or symbolically if they had to live it themselves. And so, yeah, I wanted to draw the relationship between those and provide texture, nuance, interpretation so we could feel what they felt and fear what they feared. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing that is um, that I appreciate about this chapter, I know I've already dragged you through your own Karen trauma. But I think it's important too, Doc, because what you do, um, and this is to a larger point that you have about the book, where you really take on the education system and its inability to not only communicate um, with, you know, uh, history, history class um, 
uh, folks in history class uh, about the textbooks that are used that will brush over slavery or will brush over, you know, systemic and racial oppression. So you, in a very detailed fashion, um, talk about the rise of a Karen and make it very clear that Karening is not new. You know, in fact, we tapped right into, again, your own Karen trauma from this bus. Um, I'm sure she is also still traumatized, though. <laughs> oh, bless and, her heart. Um, the thing that, that I think resonated with me so much, and I hope that people will talk about this pack, passage, share this passage, and talk. make sure that the folks who are like, I want to be an ally, engage around this. You say, Black folks have had the nearly impossible task of convincing the world that what we say about how we are treated is true. Right. Right? Yes, yes. All of this is coming to light while COVID is disproportionately hitting us. They can't, the numbers can't lie. Data don't lie, right? And then you have George Floyd in eight minutes and 46 seconds that people cannot escape because of COVID, right? Like they're trapped in their homes having to watch this thing that you're talking about becoming manifest, not because we spoke it and they believed us, Doc, but because they had to watch it. There it is. You I know? mean, you, you again, you're speaking so much more clearly and eloquently than I could. You're right. They had to see it. And you helped me understand, again, even about the, you know, protecting ourselves and self-care, which is necessary. But when you have to see it, when you have no choice, when you are just at home, and this is the genius of Martin Luther King Jr., by the way, King said now, and, and because he had lost out in uh, Albany, Georgia, where my daddy is from, Albany, as they say in uh, Georgia, Albany, Georgia, he had been outfoxed by a sheriff who said, oh, no, 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 we ain't putting all y'all together in no jail. Y'all ain't going to be singing those songs up in here, dog. So we put some over here. We put some out in the county. We put some in the city. He was ingenious. He split them up. And then they couldn't have caravans of black people who were congregating together and resisting and some other troubles. So they got defeated in Albany. So King two years later said, nah, we're not going to do the same thing here. And he figured out a way. He said, this is a buffoonish uh, supervisor of public safety, Bull Connor. And we're going to let his arrogance lead him to do some ignorant stuff. And on the six o'clock news, they're going to play it back washing women and children against the walls with water hoses and letting the bicuspids and incisors of police dogs rip into the flesh or nip at the flesh of black people. King was about, now I know performative is a bad word and I get it, but for me, performance is critical. Performance of, theater of, dramatization of tragedy and trauma. And King was a master theater. Uh, a, a master theatrical person who staged the civil rights movement. Uh, many others did, but but him especially. John Lewis on the bridge, staging it. So I say all that to say that that we have to watch it, that, that, that white folk at their cribs, at their houses, uh, along with uh, the rest of us, but I'm saying especially them, at their homes. They're at home because of COVID. They are already forced to be home. So many more of them, millions more are watching their screens in a way that they wouldn't have been if they had been at work. So it was opportunistic for this to happen when it did, and they saw it flash across their screens. And let me tell you what else they said. Oh, we ain't got no excuse this time. We can't say, well, you shouldn't assassinate him. Ain't no assassin. He was going, officer, please, sir. He literally, while he was being murdered, was treating them with great respect. 
Then they couldn't say he was running because he's under their knees. Then they couldn't say he was resisting arrest. He was right there. And then they couldn't say he presented a threat because they had him under control. So every excuse white people had ever used fell, melted in the face of George Floyd. I think because of COVID, because of, and they were empathetic to us to a degree because black and brown bodies were far more susceptible to this than, than white bodies. And then, and then white folks said, are you kidding me? Do black people have to deal with this on top of COVID? Now we knew the, the police weren't going to suspend their agony and their hatred of us just because of some darn virus. We knew that that was going to happen. But for white folk, they were going, this is, a, this, is a, this is too far. This is tragic. Because Eric Garner didn't move them in the same way because it wasn't the same situation. So I think because of all of that, you're absolutely right. They were forced to see it. They couldn't avert their eyes. And they hit those streets and they lined up and they got with Black Lives Matter because they understood for the first time. It woke them up in a way that nothing else had. Not slavery, not Jim Crow, not post-Reconstruction, not, not working as sharecroppers. You would think it would. Not the civil rights movement, not the black water fountain and white water fountain, not the civil rights bill, not the Voting Rights Act, not the Fair Housing Act. Nothing moved them in a way that the George Floyd murder did because it was the revolution of the smartphone that changed their perspectives. Now, it's died down some. It's subsided because you can't sustain that intensity forever. But the change was real, and the change was, I think, hopefully something that will have a permanent impact on our race relations here in America. You know, Doc, I hope you're right. But the main thing I've seen changed and still, like, it's still changed is, like, the email signature block that now says Black Lives Matter. So, like, that's not an argument anymore. This is now trendy and trending. But in the when you start thinking about the real policy shifts... right. There were lacking. So the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act has passed the House, but it can't even get considered in the Senate. Donald Trump issues a, t a toothless executive order around this, really bringing sheriffs to the White House to demonstrate that he's still with Blue Lives Matter. And then we're even in a, in a, in a debate, a hot debate intra-party with Democrats about whether or not saying defund the police caused people, costed people their, their legislative seats. And all of that in the backdrop of you draw again a historical connection just by dropping this poem in the book from Langston Hughes right before you get into the Eric Garner chapter where you address George Floyd. It says, I looked and I saw that man they call the law. He was coming down the street at me. I had visions in my head of being laid out cold and dead or else murdered by the third degree. And that tells us very clearly that this eight minutes and 46 seconds that was captured has been happening for centuries. This is our experience with law enforcement from the very beginning of, you know, the creation of this country. That's true. That's true. I can't like, deny what, it. What is the real shift and why is a radical shift because we can't reform something that was never designed to serve us. Why is that such a problem? Right. Well, you'd have to ask President Obama that. Well, he's not in a decision-making seat, right? No, right? but he's but 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 he's using his bully pulpit to speak out against the very people who could uh, obviously use his help right now. Let me let me stay there for a little bit, and then I because I wouldn't even intend to do that. But let me just I wasn't intending to bring it up, but you started it. Well, when you said 
about defunding police and why people can't understand, he one of them. Now, now, I will defend him on this. A lot of people jumped on Obama. And I'm going to answer your question, but I want to answer this first. A lot of people jumped on Obama. They hadn't heard the whole interview. And the reason I went to look to the whole interview is because I get misrepresented all the time. You said this, and I said, did you read my book? No, but I heard you say, Negro, please, if you ain't read the book, you know, I had to come up with a Jesse Jackson. If my book you do not read, do not attempt to make me bleed. That's what I said. So read the gum book. It's right there. So... Obama was far more nuanced in a way. Yeah, he was. All right. Because he said, hey, if you're trying to sell some shoes or you're trying to get people to do what you want them to do, and a commercial, you know, you got to you got to do it in a way. You got to meet them where they are, like Jesus with the woman at the well. He didn't say that, but I'm just putting that in. So he was more nuanced, I get it. But here's the point. Mm-hmm. Are you more upset at the missed opportunity you think people had when they used defund the police than the real policing problem that causes people to want to defund it in the first place. And I'm telling you, his words are being used and he's smart. So we got to say you are smart, dude. Mm -hmm. Your words are being used to lash out against the people who are trying to find the most reasonable fashion of trying to not reform a police. Like you said, we ain't trying to reform nothing that was never meant for us. Defunding ain't even mean what most people think it means. Because if you ask it a different way, and this is Obama's point, and I agree with him here, if you ask him in a different way, hey, do you want the police to continue to kill black people? Well, no. Do you want them to show up and hurt uh, and harm uh, mentally ill people? Well, well, no. Do you do you want police unions out of control with all their dough to continue to deny the legitimate reformation that could come if they would agree to some of these? Well, no. Then you defunded the police too. Because what it means is we're going to take money in one section, put it in another. See, so what we've done is we've collapsed the distinction between police and public safety. They ain't the same thing, dog. Police ain't the only people who deal with public safety. Public safety is critical. And what Obama understands, and Jim Clyburn too, let's throw him in there. What they understand, as Roz Baraka does, Roz Baraka now out of New Jersey said that defunded police is some bourgeois Negroes who ain't living in the hood, homie. Because I'm up here as a mayor of people in the hood, and they need the police. Now, we can argue about that. We can argue about that. But my point is, there's nuance and complication, texture to how black people see this. And Obama was tapping into one area of it. Jim Clyburn tapping into one area with him by saying, hey, y'all killed the movement. And these older, Jim Clyburn especially, he's earned his stripes. He knows what he's talking about. Obama been president. I mean, what what you going to say about that? So I understand, as I put it, do you want the commercial or the product? Right. If you get the commercial, but you ain't got, you know, hey, I looked at the commercial it was great, but they didn't send me through Amazon or wherever you getting them uh, my shoes. So the commercial was there, but I ain't got the shoes. Or do you forget the commercial? Just get the shoes, the product. Do you want the commercial or the product? And I understand Obama at that level. But here's the problem. I respect people who talk about defunding the police, whether it's Angela Davis in a much more sophisticated fashion than than some people have talked about it. Because they understand that defunding means we got to put $150 million, like L.A. police did, into other arenas, especially into mental health care. San Francisco, maybe $100 million. New York, the same. So the point is that when we say defund, yeah, there could be a different language used. And I think the left has to be stop being so uh, hypersensitive as well in this sense. Mm-hmm. If you know you want to do something, 
And all you got to do is change a little bit of the language in order to articulate it. Don't be pissed. Don't be so purist like, oh, no, I must hold to the notion of defunding. Why don't you find a different way? See, this is part of the privilege of some people on the left. When we grew up as black people, we, we look, I don't care if you call it hookah babuka. If it's called hookah babuka, but you giving me what I need, I'm down with it and I'm riding with you. So I say all that to say that it's extremely important for us to understand that, yes, uh, that we have been dealing with this 846 and really it was nine minutes. Now they've done another analysis and it was longer than nine minutes. But 846 is totemic. It's symbolic and I get it. So 846, here we are. We've been dealing with 846 from the beginning since 1619. We've been dealing with 846, but this is what I know. Every round goes higher and higher. You're doing the same thing. Jacob's ladder, you're climbing, but it's getting different. Repetition is key to black life. But every time you repeat it, every verse you repeat, and every time you repeat it, you add nuance, you add in color, you add in tone. And this is why I'll end by saying this. It is important to me that, that yeah, we've been dealing with this from the very beginning. And we've been dealing with this for a long time. That's why the book is called Long Time Coming. But we don't have, I think, the right to give up at this moment when the people who got us here work so hard regardless of what they saw. And you got to think you smarter than them in order for you to figure out, well, they didn't know this. Dude, they were there. They were living it. So when, when I see people, with, I'm not my ancestors. Damn right you ain't because you ain't made of that, homie. You ain't got that kind of wherewithal. You don't know how to be that strong. Those, yes. those gray-haired men that you get mad at and you call them Toms because they had to stop on the side of the road and the cops treated them like boys in front of their children or their bladders are messed up like I'm 62 years old. And I used to ask my father and mother, why can't we stop? We are leaving Detroit and going to both Alabama and Tennessee, and everybody else is stopping to use the bathroom. How come we can't stop? How come we got to use the, the mason jar under the car? How come we eating sandwiches out of the darn brown paper bag, and we can't stop at the friggin' store, right? And I was a kid. I was like, this is wrong. I don't understand it. So I'm saying that we'd have to contend that they were stupid or ignorant or ill-informed to believe that they got us this far for us to now give up and go, well, damn, it's been too hard. Uh, it's going to be, you know, we're facing this again. This is the story. And if this is the story, this is we know where we're up against that, then we have to fight even harder. Because this is what I do know. You never can tell when history will erupt. You never can tell when 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 God will move. Look, in, 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 Birmingham, in um, Montgomery, Alabama, and as you know, December 1st, Rosa Parks sat on that bus, and 381 days later, whenever it was, when the Supreme Court ruled that segregation would no longer be on the, the bus, you know what somebody said in the audience? God Almighty has spoken from Washington, D.C. So, so the beauty of it is you never can tell when history will erupt. You don't know. And, 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 and my Bible tells me, since I'm a preacher, one person going to plant the seed, Another person going to water it and God going to make it grow. So my point is, my responsibility is to plant seeds, write books, uh, my to preach sermons, tell truths, even if it looks like it's dark. Ain't nobody listening. God dang it, they don't even want to hear me. That's not my worry. My worry is to continue to plant seeds because structural change will come about. 
Structural change can come about instantly. Martin Luther King Jr., John Lewis, um, uh, Diane Nash, Septa McClark, uh, Ella Baker, they didn't know in 1955 when a woman stayed on a bus that it would destroy the architecture of Jim Crow, structural change over almost a 10-year period. So we don't know. I think our responsibility is to keep striking, keep moving, and keep believing. Because when we don't have that, we've already lost, and the war will be over. And the people that we have that we have loved, that who produced us, we will have failed. And I don't want to fail my ancestors. I just don't. Well, I um I have to tell you. So they want us to start asking audience questions, but I got some more questions first. Uh, which means, Doc, that you cannot be at the pulpit. You got to answer my book questions because, you know, I, I got questions about every chapter. I'm going to try to weave them in with some of the things that other folks want to ask. But this is, an, th- this is to me, was another, like, paradigm-shifting moment in the book. We talked about the Karens and how that's not a new idea. You also, in the letter to Brianna, talk about the theft and looting did not end once Black folk got to North America. The routine theft and the like the uncanny connection to literally why they've alleged Breonna Taylor died, which is to speed up gentrification in the neighborhood, is yet another form of Columbusing, right? Which is also known as gentrification. But they will they will literally kill to get the property they want, whether that property is our physical bodies or our our real property, right? Like talk about. When you when you refer to the tools of white leisure and greed, talk about how we deconstruct that in 2020 when people allegedly can see a whole lot more clearly now. How do we finally start like unraveling from that? Like that is truly in our DNA. We are postured to martyrdom, as you talked about. We are postured to be taken from and just say that's just how white folks are. How do we shift out of that in this year? Yeah, no, that's a great, great point. Yeah, I'm going to try to be very brief because that's such a brilliant question. Look, they've been stealing us from the very beginning. When you talk, we are the loot. We are the loot of your imagination. We are the bounty, the booty, B-O-O-T-Y, uh, yeah. that you that you stole uh, from another nation, from another country, and you stole from us. You stole our futures. Appropriation is a form of theft, right? When you steal our culture. That beautiful Dr. Dre and Beats commercial, you like our culture, but you don't like us. We've been saying that from the getty up. Greg Tate, the critic, said you want everything but the burden of blackness. You don't want the burden of it. You want everything else, right? And so for me, uh, they have been stealing our futures from the beginning. Stealing Breonna Taylor's future is is, is literally a metaphor for what's been going on from the get-go. In enslavement, when they're stealing our labor and stealing our future and stealing our intelligence and stealing our design, stealing our imagination, stealing our breath, our bodies. And so still doing that when they stole Breonna Taylor's life, when they stole Ahmaud Arbery's life, when they stole George Floyd's life, this is an ultimate act of theft. And how we resist that, I think, is to point it out. That's why, you know, it's hard for me to get upset when people talk about how y'all out here looting. And, and we talking about killing a building, killing a door hinge, burning it. Now, now, if it's your building, I'm not mad. I understand some people lost their property. I'm not trying to justify that. But I'm saying if you compare the loss of a building 
to the burning of a building not made with hands, excuse me for preaching, talking about this body of ours, and you burning that down and you killing those folk, Martin Luther King Jr. said, don't ever ask me again to speak out against these people rioting in what? While the American government is just as violent and if not more so. So my point is how we deal with it. Yeah, you tell us about looting. I tell you that's a bad thing, but what's worse is how we've been looted. And you continue to loot us. Charles Keating is a looter. The people who stole money on Wall Street are looters. Donald Trump is the greatest looter that we've had in the White House for a minute. So my point is, let's use this opportunity to reflect about what real looting is, what real loss of life is, how we reorganize the logic of democracy by using the example of black bodies and black appropriation and black death and black theft and a Breonna Taylor, as you said brilliantly, the Columbusing of the discovery of something that's already there, you acting like you discovered it, right? And gentrification, which is the attempt to impose upon neighborhoods that you have sacked of their value, you deliberately bleed them of their wealth, and then you suck the blood out of them, displace the people, and then move in in a vicious way to overtake those communities to make them of greater value than they were when the black people had it. So that's what we got to continue to do, continue to acknowledge what it is, and don't be falling for the okie doke. And then black people go, yeah, it's wrong to be out here uh, with looting and all that stuff and missing the major point. We are the example of white theft and loot. Yeah, we truly are. Um, I want to ask you this question um, because it's talking about the strength of black women. And you're always so great, um, Doc, at commending the strong and powerful black women in your life, including your daughter and the lovely Mama Marcia, who I call Mama Marcia, your bride. Um, we have a question. It's clear black women are why Joe Biden won the election. Despite centuries of misogyny in American culture, how can we all do our part to uplift the voices of black women? I mean, we're looking at an example. My beautiful, brilliant daughter here, Angela Rye. And let me tell y'all something, and I hope I'm not speaking out of term here. Um, you know, when people ask me and say, man, did Angela Rye, has she always been like, first of all, she always been this way. Like what you see, she ain't faking. Like, like, like that ain't no joke, dog. When one person was looking at her and when a million look at her, she'd been real from the beginning. We have partied at a Jay-Z concert. We have stood in church together. We have, this is who she is from the very beginning. But she maintained her commitment and her decision to have a certain kind of integrity and a certain kind of behavior in the world. This is what black women do. They maintain, you know what they say, characters, what, what you do when ain't nobody looking at you. The integrity of black women is even more tested. What do you do when the world is looking at you? Not just when ain't nobody looking at you, when the whole world is looking at you through a distorted lens. And what black women did, look, look at the one-two combination. You got old black men, like, like older black men, like Jim Clyburn, who might as well be Moses coming down from the mountain. The Lord has said, these are the Ten Commandments. <laughs> Joe Biden, <laughs> he just, like, he saved him. He saved that dude, right? He, he saved he, it, Joe Biden. He definitely did. He saved that boy. Whatever you think, Jim Clyburn, he, he saved him. And yeah. then black women said, oh, we got it from here. Black women said, okay, you know, you coming down, but when you cross that, you make that exodus and split that sea, we going to be right there. And black women, Doug Jones, black women right there. Black women, Right. Black women voting for the tickets that we know are best for us. 
The uptick of 4% for black women was an anomaly, I think. 5% for black men. 13% of black men voted for Trump in uh, 2016, 18%. Now, part of that is bravado. Black men want to identify with a dude who's got swagger, crude swagger, though it is, forcible swagger, though it is, borrowed swagger that Donald Trump has. His own wife don't even want to hold his hand. She probably wanted to hold Obama's hand, too. But anyway, so the thing is, is that the, the, the kind of crude swagger and the kind of masculinity that some black men prefer, they didn't want to vote for, for, for uh, Kamala Harris because we are sexist and misogynistic, too. And some of us don't want black women being in control any more than anybody else does. But when you look at it across the board, black women voted in the 90s still for, uh, for Joe Biden, certainly for Barack Obama and Bill Clinton and the like. They've saved us on local levels, down ballot. They have showed up. They have organized. They have uh, done voter registrations. They have stood up for black men. And this is especially acute. When you look at the people who have led the fight to defend black men, it has been black women. Yeah. And for black men to turn around, bitch, hoe, skeezer, slut, hood rat, chicken head, shawty, and, and the thing, I'm just saying, look, stop, dude, at a certain level, stop. We understand it in the midst of aesthetic expression and you having fun and stuff, but at the end of the day, little Wayne got a little bit too real for us. Oh, you, 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 so you can call women the B word, but you hang with a guy who told shows that you the real B. Who is the real B, homie? It's you. I'd rather push flowers and, you know, and all that stuff he's talking about. Rather be underground pushing flowers than in the pen sharing showers. All right. Well, you were in a pen with Donald Trump, and that's the kind of shower you were sharing. So the point is this, that black women have from the very beginning been a strength, a backbone. There is some black male resentment. Black men say, wait a minute, black women in a patriarchal culture, the greatest threat to another patriarch is another patriarch. So that black women get an easy way. They ain't got no easy way. They got to deal with the nastiness of white supremacy at outside and then come home to deal with the bruised ego and the fractured spirit of a black man who they have to help put together even as they fight their own demons. I tell you, I love and support black women. I wrote a book when it wasn't popular called Why I Love Black Women. That wasn't no thing to do. And I did it because I wanted to celebrate the ingenuity, the power, the insight, the intelligence, and the creativity of Black women. Doc, so here's the here's the thing. I also want to get to this because I feel like it is a really good tie-in to where you just were. The second highest uh, percentage of people who voted for Joe Biden beneath Black women were Black men. Right? And... Yet and still, yet and still, we're acting like that's not the case because there was some minor percentage, right, that went across the aisle and voted for Donald Trump. You address in your letter to Hydea Pendleton, cancel culture. Can you for a moment just drill down on how the cancel culture, even if it originated from us, Right. Even if it did, how does that framing actually put us in greater harm? Because it, it means that there's even less unity in a community that no is not monolithic at all. Right. But creates even a further divide. Like, well, you talk too basic, even though you have three degrees. Well, you talk too bougie and high and mighty, even though you have one degree. You you don't talk to nobody because. You said, don't talk to nobody. Like, you know what I mean? Like, we have a gazillion reasons why we cancel people, 
None of it is um, Christ-centered because it's not long-suffering. It's not loving. It doesn't give people an opportunity for redemption. How how do we how do we get out of something? You just keep talking. I don't even want to answer that. Keep talking. You you are preaching, baby. No, I'm serious. Keep talking. How do how do we get out of something that that is spiraling now beyond our control? Right? Like and it's gonna cause us more harm than good because it's it goes back to the same concept you were just talking about about the purest mentality that none of us can hold because we're all fallible human beings. My God, you said it. I ain't got nothing else to say, but amen. And and let me add just a very brief thing. Yeah. See, as you pointed out brilliantly there, the cancel culture ain't, yeah, it started with us and black Twitter. Now, what is black Twitter? Y'all, you know, Jay-Z said, y'all, y'all ain't get no check when, when Jack get that check. Y'all, y'all ain't got no money. I don't know. Black Twitter. All right. But that's just how dominant we are. Even when we don't own something, we own it. That's beautiful. That's powerful. But in the real world, you know, you know, as Marcia points out all the time, Oh, you mad at black billionaires and people who've done the thing and you mad at black people who've been upwardly mobile. You're on a billionaire's platform talking about you are radically other than, you know, interested in capital. Now, you could be you could use the master's tool to undermine the master's house. But the point is, you own a billionaire's platform, Zuckerberg and Facebook and Jack and Twitter. What you think you're doing? But you're purist because you don't examine your own practices. I'm not suggesting that people shouldn't have serious critiques of things, but I'm saying the hatred that I see in, in cancel culture is destructive to me. And let me tell you what, it might catch you every now and again a Harvey Weinstein, a Bill Cosby, or R. Kelly, but for the most part, it's parallel. It's horizontal. We canceling each other out. And some of the Negroes, some of the people, some of the white folk, indigenous, uh, Latinx, whoever you want to cancel, you got to uncancel them. I remember when they canceled uh, Whitney Houston. Oh, she too bushy. She too that. And then it found, what, what, uh, Whitney Houston bushy? Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, Bobby Brown and her. And then they were like, oh, my God, we have to uncancel. She has shown up super sister behind the scene. But that's the point. You don't know who what, what, what people are. You don't know what their identities are. And you up here canceling. And if you got so much power to cancel, cancel Donald Trump. And you couldn't do it. And I'm telling people, if you're that powerful, you can cancel Donald Trump, then I'm with your cancel culture. But what did you have to do to get rid of Donald Trump? Vote. You had to pull a lever. You had to organize. You had to walk your butt to a pole. You had to acknowledge the existence of a system and then use rules to adjudicate your beliefs in a culture that had competing interests, one for Biden, one for Trump. So my point is cancel culture doesn't deliver what it's supposed to deliver and it removes an individual person, but it doesn't address the system. And as you beautifully said, all this cancel culture is about judging somebody else, the judge and jury. It's the mob. It's like the lynch mob from the KKK brought to bear. And black people hurt each other that way, too. Latinx people hurt each other that way. Women hurt each other that way, too. I've seen it. It is dis- it is distasteful and it's disgusting. And in the name of just and then I see people who canceled other people get canceled themselves. Because if you the canceler one day, you the cancelee the next day. It's me, it's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. So I believe that forgiveness is the best way. And I end by saying this. Look, and I talk about this a little bit in the book. Mm-hmm. Black people call me from North, uh, from um, Virginia. They said, hey, Doc, look, we got this governor over here who's been in blackface. And the black people want to get together. Should we to remove him? I said, hell no. Mm-hmm. I said, let me tell you a secret, bro. I said, I ain't old for nothing. Let me tell you something. Ain't nothing better than a hobbled white man who understands 
that his butt was on the line and black people saved him, he going to do more for y'all than a white man that you would put in his place who would go, I've never done blackface. That's what he was accused of doing when he was 20 years before when he was in uh, medical school. Was it ridiculous? Of course. Was it racist? Yeah. But 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 my God, he was younger by 20 years. Where is he now? What's he doing now? And what have you done for me lately? So here's a guy who, because he was forgiven, was grateful. And so what did he do? First thing he did, 10,000 felons had their rights restored to them. Right there, you can shout the hallelujah because a disproportionate number of them were black. Then he went on to deal with healthcare and, and, and about five or six other things. And I'm saying, because he was forgiven, because he was allowed to come back. Don't call it a comeback. I've been here for years. Because he was allowed to make a comeback, he allowed us to make a come up because we came through for him. And as a result of that, we held him to account, but we also elevated him. And as you brilliantly said, we don't give people the space to come back and redeem themselves. And let me tell you something else. When you push a man or a woman against the wall, sometimes the only way out is through your behind and they're going to be blasting. And so that's what we've got to remember about cancel culture. I think cancel culture is white supremacy by other means. I really. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So here, so here's my next question. This comes from um, someone who um, says he's a black, back, black Baptist preacher, but goes back to this idea of martyrdom um, and, and where we go, where we go from here in terms of martyrdom. You talked earlier about self-care almost being something that is foreign to older generations. And, um, you know, also in the book, um, and, and this is in the letter to Sandra Bland, you talk about black exhaustion which is the very reason why self-care is so necessary. What's so brilliant about this book, Doc, is you're not afraid to tap in and to explore areas where you yourself may be conflicted. And you walk us through those conflicts. Like we are tired and we've been tired since before we were birthed because we carry that exhaustion in our DNA. And so here you say, uh, they, they think that it's... That, they think that is just another way to preserve white comfort and that the most effective way for white folk to overcome their dependence on blackness is to learn to swim without the aid of black lifeguards. To me, this feels like the answer to the martyrdom question, right? Like we have to literally take a step back and release it. Do we feel like white America is ready to be released without a black lifeguard being present? Right. What do you think? That that's a brilliant point. And and look, and that's I think and that that is the brilliance of a younger generation that is tired of the death, tired of the necessary martyrdom, tired of the victimization, tired of the loss of life. That older people, and I don't want to just make it older versus younger, because one day older go, younger gonna be older, then they're gonna be talking, right? But there is something to be said for our belief that it had to be a sacrifice. It had to be suffering. It had to be a kind of martyrdom. And Martin Luther King Jr. was just brilliant. But it wasn't just in his generation, so to contradict myself or at least add some nuance, look at what happened in that church in South Carolina when Reverend Clemente Pinckney, named after Roberto Clemente, the great, great ba baseball player, uh, Puerto Rican, his mama named him after her. And, and when they got killed, before their bodies were cold, Black people were forgiving them. My God, 
the redemption, the self-creation, the self-respect, the honoring of the universe and the laws that dictate how we, you know, engage with one another, that's all embodied right there. So on the one hand, we don't want to create, what did Dr. King say? I'm tired of marching, but talking about exhaustion. He says, if you want us to end our moves into communities, open these communities. He says, I'm tired of marching, tired of marching for something that should have been mine at birth. Right? So he said, I'm tired. If you want us to end what we're doing, then open these communities. He said, I don't have a martyr complex. Right? He said, I ain't trying to die. I'm trying to live as long as I can, but longevity has its place. So remember that last speech he gave. So, so the beauty of what you said, of course, is that if we release it, right? Because at, at the end of the day, we ain't going to be able to do it by ourselves anyhow. When we release it, we see that there are others who will take charge, who will stand up and begin to take effect, right? I, I, uh, to be effective. I remember the story of Elijah in the Bible. He comes, you know, in 2 Kings, it is enough, O Lord, now take away my life, for I'm not better than my father's. The ancestors, I thought I was better than them. You know, uh, 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 they were holding signs in the Hebrew. I am not my ancestor. No, you ain't. Now he says, but I ain't better than them. Black Lives Matter, we're better than you people in the SNCC and in SCLC. We will not have internecine squabbles. Oh, one of them over here don't like this style. Another one over here hating on that. I don't want to foreground that. But y'all, it's the same thing, dog. So you ain't better than your fathers. I am not better than my fathers. He said, now take away my life. Kill me. For they have slain your prophets and taken down your altar, and they're worshiping a false god. God says, slow down, mace, you're killing them. Be cool, get some sleep because you're depressed. Get up. First thing God shows him. What do you see over here? You said, I only, only am I of left? You the only one left? What do you see? Oh, 7,000 people. And they ain't worshiping a false god. You don't know everybody doing what you're doing on the same track you're doing it in because they're doing it in a different place. You're not the only one. So you take yourself, you take what you do with deadly seriousness, but you don't take yourself too seriously at all. You are not the only one. Michael Eric Dyson ain't the only one. Angela Rye ain't the only one. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. wasn't the only one. Angela Davis ain't the only one. We are of a cloud of witnesses and that relieves us. Let it go. Do your part. Play your position. Stay in your lane. Examine what you can do. Maximize your skill and talent. Be good at what you do. And when you do that, you have not only lived up to your potential, but you've made the greatest contribution possible for you to make. So I think, yes, it's extremely important for us to relieve ourselves and to, rel and to, to bring relief to others by saying, let the white folk have it too. Let them do what they got to do. And white folk have to be responsible. Black exhaustion comes because when we talk about being woke, we tell white folk to be woke. We've been woke. We, we, got, we got collective sleep apnea. Negroes can't get to sleep. And we don't trust you when we go to sleep. Because we figure if we go to sleep and go to sleep for a minute, y'all going to take the car and crash it. So we got to stay awake because we scared of what you're going to do when you take control. So again, when we understand that, hey, it's a relay race, there are other people out here doing what, that, the things that need to be done, and we have to deputize white folk. You got to go into your crib. Because I don't care how smart Angela Rye is. I don't care how smart Michael Eric Dyson is. There's some things some white folk ain't going to hear from nobody except other white people. And if other white people hear from you, you can make a difference. So we deputize white people as well to do the right thing. The um, 
One of the greatest things about this book, really everything you write, Doc, is um, truly there is a, a self-accountability. There is, um, a, you know, a history lesson or several. There are several, of course, in this book. Um, you deal with cancel culture, which is something that is, you know, an internal family conversation with our folks, um, with Black exhaustion, with with Karening and the, the Coopers, like all of these things. And, of course, police violence on Black bodies. But you always end with hope. In the letter to uh, Reverend Pinckney, um, who, of course, is your fellow clergyman, you say, my hope finally rests in a force of being whose outlines I can't discern with my eyes nor prove with my mind or mouth. And yet here I am, and there she is. There he resides. And there is this idea that um, we are not in control of our, our destiny. We're not in control of the future. And there's a question that came in from an audience member that says, how do we show people that this was not a trend? And I think so much of that lies in that hope that you carry, not only in your writings, but um, in your spirit and the way that you live out your life. But give us a little more hope about why this cannot be a trend and why we should not allow it to be a trend that comes to an end to your earlier point. Yeah, no, bless you for that. And thank you for those those words of encouragement from from you. You know, the, the way it can't be a trend, the way we know it's not a trend, it moves from a moment to a movement. It moves from, you know, a first inkling to something deeper. Acknowledge that initially <clears throat> what started as a trend might become tremendous, right? So what? It, it, look, let's be honest. Like, oh yeah, we were all doing the thing and, and all of us were getting into it. We jumped on the on board, but we discovered when we jumped on board, there was something redemptive about what's going on. Man, I joined church because, you know, I was trying to holler at a few honeys and they were going to church. And then I discovered Jesus was there. My God, okay. I mean, I was following you. What What I went for ain't what I got there and got from it, right? So what I went for ain't got what I ain't what I got when I got there. And so sometimes trends and you know, some people might do it because of, you know, showboating or bandwagoning. All right. You know, you meet people where they are. Jesus said that, you know, when he went up to talk to the woman at the well, he didn't give her no theological sermon about changing your life. He said, Can I have a drink of water? So then when she gives them a drink of water, they start talking and have a conversation. And then the real purpose of the engagement becomes revealed. So, so whatever starts as a trend, fine. If certain white people jump on because they think it's the right thing to do, great. If they use Black Lives Matter as a trend, powerful. If they put it on their T-shirts, thank you. Because maybe after you left that and you look up one day and saw that T-shirt and go, hmm. And you saw that email and went, hmm. And you saw what people are willing to die for, and you come to it lately, but now you understand. Like Paul in the Bible, out here killing Christians, and then one day has a, an experience on route to do some, hope, some hateful, horrible things. So I believe that each person has to play out his or her destiny. You got to get in where you fit in, literally. You got to come to an awareness of who you are as you do. A lot of people will be mad at white people. Are y'all just now being awakened by George Floyd? We could spend a lot of time worrying about that. The problem is that if we do all that, we lose the opportunity to exploit their awakening. Now that you're awake, do this. And as I talk in the book, there are many levels to this. As Meek Bill say, there's levels to this ish. So first of all, you got to be an ally. How do you do that? Well, 
you, you got to read and study. That's important. Then beyond that, you got to practice it in your life. Then beyond that, you got to take it to your corporate world and to your families and where you live. Then beyond that, you got to deal with systems. Every word that ends in system, you got to examine. Criminal justice system, healthcare system, public education system. Systematic racism means dealing with the perpetuation of legacies of inequality through systems. For me, where hope comes in is what Howard Thurman, the great mystic, said. He said, never reduce your dreams to the event you are experiencing. Whether it's divorce, whether it's children ain't obeying you, whether you're breaking up with your friends, whether the institutions that you uh, participate in don't recognize your worth. He said, don't reduce it to that. Then he used the example. He said, our slave foreparents had an imagination. They couldn't even imagine us in their imagination, but they did. They conjured us. He said they imagined stuff way beyond their ability. He says when they were looking at the long rolls of cotton and the rawhide whip of the overseer, they had two choices, become a prisoner of the event or become a prisoner of hope. I choose hope. And when you choose to become a prisoner of hope, that means you got something against the evidence. Ain't no reason for it. Ain't no reason to believe you could do it. Look at Joe Biden. My God, you ran for president three times. You're 77 years old, now 78. You a has-been. Ain't nobody studying you. You you got caught the first time for plagiarizing. The second time you said a Negro was sharp and so clean because you were listening to Outkast. They didn't know you had an underground uh, hip hop collection. And then you out here, homie, and and you're you're vice president. You're Ed McMahon. You will never be Johnny Carson. You will never be the guy. Seventy-seven years old, under conditions that we still can't even explain, that were so unique that he became the president of the United States of America. So for me, you hold out hope because you never know what time and what place God, the universe, uh, fortune, uh, the cycles of history will bless you, will allow you to erupt and become who you are. And all of us have to have that hope, that possibility. I don't believe in optimism. Optimism is a shallow virtue, according to Rhino Niebuhr, the theologian. He said hope is deeper, because even when ain't nothing there, you believe something's going to be there by the time you get there. That's what hope is. I'm a prisoner of hope. It may be it may be goofy. It may be whack. It may be sorry to some people, but I believe with that hope, we can transform the world, because I believe what, what, what Joe Biden did, and I don't believe in, and I'll end by, by saying this, when people say, Oh, God put Joe Biden in. I don't believe in none of that. Let me tell you why. Because if you believe Joe Biden was put in by God, you got to believe God put in Donald Trump. So if you're going to believe, what, God took a four-year vacation and wasn't God no more? Or you believed, like some of our brothers and sisters do, that God used Donald Trump to punish us. Is God that kind of parent? That he going to whip you for four years? That, that she going to whip you for four years and, and put you down? And No, no, no. This is what I believe. God articulates principles that should be met. Justice, freedom, the belief in humanity, the decency of the other. Our ability, our responsibility is to match the person with the ideals God gave us. So God, ain't. it don't make no difference if it's Joe Biden or Kamala Harris or Donald Trump, if you believe that. God doesn't give individuals. That's why Paula White was wrong. 
God told me that, that, that Donald Trump is going to be president. No, baby, you got a bad theology. The theology should be God has articulated the ideal norms that should prevail. It's your responsibility to find the person who matches them. Don't be putting that on God. That's on us. We have to do the work. So I have hope that we will continue to manifest a belief in a universe that continues to reward us because we are faithful to the ideas that even if nobody else believes them, we do. And black people, we have changed this world and we will continue to do so. I love that. Dr. Michael Eric Dyson, everybody. I know you have the book, but get it for your family members. This is an incredible, incredible read. I love my mentor dad's brain. I feel like I'm connected. I feel like spiritually I get it. And that's why our book talks are always so good. Y'all, our text messages look like that too. Don't be jealous. But in the meantime, Michael Eric Dyson, long time coming, reckoning with race in America and true to form. Of course, there's a Sam Cooke reference here too, in case y'all missed it. He loves music, y'all. But Doc, thank you. I love you. I am uplifted. If this was Wednesday night, it would be a Bible study that I will take. My spiritual growth on a Thursday, too. I needed this today. I hope you all are blessed. I hope you are uplifted. I hope you have learned some things because I know I did. I love you, Doc. Love you, too. Thank you so much. The great Angela Rye, you blessed us tonight. And this is why I coveted your your doing this because you pull stuff out of me that I didn't know was there. You shape me in a certain way. You discipline me. You make me shut up and then listen to this different path and you direct us. And you do this not only for me, but for so many of us. And to be so young. And so I'm, I'm old. I'm 41. You are doc. a child. Okay. You are young. Okay. 41. My God, I got shoes on, but, but you are, you are so gifted and so young and yet so committed. And we thank you. I thank you on behalf of America that loves you for what you do. And thank you for doing this tonight as well. Ooh, dang, we didn't even get to, you just said American. And I'm like, we didn't even get to the, my fellow American stuff. That's Boy, all right. <laughs> that's a teaser. You guys check out the, my fellow Americans bar drop by doc, the whole passage, the unpacking of what it means to be American as a black person. I want to see that in my comments on social media. I want to hear from y'all. So I know you read it. Let's have an informal book club. We all stuck in the house anyway, because people won't wear masks. So please join me in that and let's um, keep asking Doc these tough questions. Thank you all. For those of you who do not get your questions asked, please don't hesitate to reach out to him on social media and keep rooting him on as he goes through this press tour and sells these books. This is incredible. It needs to be a read from every for every high school, for every college. Like you guys, seriously, get this book. And thank you so much to Commonwealth. We appreciate you all. Yeah. Thank you all. Thank you, baby. Love you. Thank you, Commonwealth. We appreciate you. <laughs>